If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. she was actually taken to the stake and burned was really because she refused to dress as a woman. So I say at the end of that chapter, wear your trousers with pride and in memory of Joan of Arc because she suffered the most terrible death. That was Jenny Murray talking about women from history who inspired her. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with the journalist and broadcaster Jenny Murray who's presented BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour for more than 30 years. Her latest book is A History of the World in 21 Women, which explores the lives of a range of remarkable women, from Joan of Arc to Marie Curie and Madonna. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Jenny towards the end of last year, and here's how their conversation went. So probably, Jenny, the first question um, is probably how did you come to um, to choose these 21 women? Um, you know, what was the criteria that you were looking at when you when you made this selection? I wanted to have a real range of women from different periods uh, with different disciplines uh, and preferably women that I knew and liked, because you have to spend a lot of time in the company of these women when you're writing about them. Um, So I did have my doubts about Isabella of Castile. Um, And my editor was rather keen that she should go in there. And I said, no, hang on a minute. You know, there is that small matter of the Spanish Inquisition, um, the fact that she managed to throw the Jews and the Moors out of Spain. Um, and I really don't think I can possibly promote and like this woman. <laughs> he said, well, yeah, but, you know, she was really powerful. She was really important. She was, you know, really the first really important great queen of, of the period. Um, why don't you have a go? So I thought, okay, so I started to research her. And actually, um, I still do not approve of the Spanish Inquisition or what she did to the Jews and the Moors. But what was interesting about her was her father died when she was quite young and her brother took over and he tried to marry her off six times, as, of course, one would expect for a girl in her time that he would just want to make a useful marriage. Um, And she just kept saying, no, 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 no. Um, And she decided herself that the person she really wanted to marry 
was a boy that she'd met when she was very young who had smiling eyes who was called Ferdinand. And so she arranged it herself and she married Ferdinand. And I thought, wow, mm. you know, that is one extraordinary young woman. Um, and of course, she did do a tremendous amount to well, the pair of them did to unite Spain. She funded Christopher Columbus to, okay, spread Catholicism throughout the West and, you know, not everything that happened um, as the Spanish went to the new world was uh, to be applauded. Um, some people were treated extremely cruelly. Um, but I decided, yes, she was significant enough to go in there and business of her refusing to get married uh, except to the guy that she really wanted to be married to and it does seem to have been a love match I could admire her for that and then one of the extraordinary things I discovered about her as the researchers went on was that the game of chess before Isabella the queen had virtually no power on the board at all the rules of chess were changed as a result of Isabella's power, ah. and the queen, the queen became a supremely powerful piece on the chessboard. So um, that's how she got in there. And then others uh, are women that some of whom I've met: um, Toni Morrison, Margaret Atwood, who are such important writers; Wangari Maathai, who of course did so much for the environmental movement in getting women to plant trees throughout Kenya. She was fascinating um, because she'd grown up in a little village in Kenya and remembered lovely, clean water and lots of indigenous trees and everything being very green and very beautiful. And then she was lucky enough to get an education because her mother and her father said, well, okay, yeah, the boys are going to school. You might as well go with them, which again was unusual for her time. She did very well at school. And then she was lucky enough to um, become part of a scheme to take young people from Kenya to America for um, higher education. Um, and so she went to America, she saw the civil rights movement, she became highly politicized, came back to Kenya, um, was treated abominably, actually, by her husband, who insisted that she should be a proper African woman and keep quiet, um, which she wasn't. Uh, so they were divorced and she lost contact with her children for a long time, um, lost her home, lost her job at the university. Um, the leader of the country treated her abominably, again saying, you know, you're an African woman, you should shut up. Um, and she didn't shut up. She just kept banging on. And eventually she thought the country's now been so ruined by people planting just for profit, you know, to grow wood and sell it. And what I'm going to do is get local women to plant indigenous trees. And she did it absolutely magnificently. And as a result of her work, women got employment, men 
joined in when they started to get wheelbarrows. Apparently, men are very keen on doing environmental work if they, <laughs> if they have tools. Um, and uh, and thousands and thousands of trees were planted by her groups of women in Kenya. And of course, very sadly, she died far too young. She had ovarian cancer and died, but her work continues. Um, there are two women I would very much like to have met. One is Kathy Freeman. Um, I wanted to have an athlete in here because being an athlete a woman athlete, is is a profoundly feminist act. When you look back at the way the Olympics used to be run, they did their very best to keep women out of it, saying, oh, you know, if women run, they'll ruin their wombs, they'll never be able to have children. And um, it was banned and banned and banned and made more and more difficult. So when somebody like Kathy Freeman, who is an Aboriginal Australian, becomes a gold medal winner. It is so important, not only for women in sport, but for Aboriginal sport. And she has made a tremendous impact in Australia on both the sporting and the racial question. And then the other one that I really, really want, people always used to ask me, Jenny, you know, of all the women you've interviewed, um, who have you not yet done that you would most like to do? And I used to say George Clooney. Uh, I know he's a woman, he's a man. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, I managed to tick him off. It was one of those things where the editor rang me on a Saturday. I normally don't work Mondays these days. And she said, oh, Jenny, can you do an interview on Monday? And I said, oh, no, I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. She said, well, this person has, has asked if you could go and do it. And I said, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, I don't work on a Monday. But who is it? She said, it's George Clooney. Oh, really? oh that's different. <laughs> which hotel? What time do I need to be there? Uh, and so off we went. And he gave us a really good interview. He's a very intelligent, interesting man. And at the end of the conversation, he said, do, do, do you want pictures? And we all went, oh, <laughs> yeah, all right. And <laughs> took our mobiles out quickly. And then most interestingly, he, he got down on his hands and knees and helped the sound recordist pack up her stuff, which... To be honest, I couldn't imagine any other A-lister actually taking the trouble to do that. So anyway, he's off the list now. Um, and Angela Merkel is the top of my list. We have tried to persuade her to be interviewed. Uh, we have failed miserably. I think she rather claims that she doesn't really speak English, which I cannot believe for a second, because... You know, she was born in West Germany and was transported to the East in a basket, apparently, by her mother as a tiny baby because her father had a job as a pastor in the East. So she spent her childhood uh, and youth in, in the East. And her story there is just fascinating. Her mother actually was an English teacher and was told by the authorities in East Germany that she would not be allowed to teach English because it was a capitalist language. So uh, her mother no longer taught English, but I'm sure she taught her 
daughter. Um, she does speak absolutely fluent Russian, which is why she has quite an easy, um, not an easy relationship, but she has a relationship with Putin. They can, she can speak to him in his own language. Um, but when she got through to the stage of having done her degree, she said she decided to study physics because she thought the rules of physics were something that even the East German authorities could not meddle with. <laughs> they certainly <laughs> couldn't change the truth of it. So she studied physics. She then was trying to get a job in a university and was told by the Stasi, okay, um, yes, we can approve you getting this job as long as you promise that you will report on your colleagues and tell us anything that is said. And Angela Merkel said to the Stasi, you know, a pretty fierce lot. Um, oh, she said, oh dear, I'm so sorry. I couldn't possibly do that. I am such a chatterbox. I could never keep a secret. And so they said, oh, all right, then go on, you can have the job. And she never did report her colleagues to the Stasi. Um, there is a a ruthlessness about her that is really interesting, where she um, was, her mentor was uh, Helmut Kohl. Uh, he called her his Mädchen, his little miss, um, and he helped her as she came up through politics. And she was the one who stabbed him in the back. She was the one who reported to the newspapers that he was involved in some financial impropriety and um, and got rid of him. And that's how she became leader of the party. And then on another occasion, when um, an archbishop um, said he was very worried, said it publicly, it was printed in the newspaper, he was very worried that there was um, a young female politician rising through the ranks who was living in sin. Um, and she was indeed living with her now husband. Uh, they'd been living together for quite some time. He'd already been married. He was divorced. Um, and so the following morning, she and he went out very quietly, uh, no fuss, got married and, uh, and not with it. <laughs> so, you know, there is a ruthlessness about her. Yeah. Um, yeah, go on, ask another question. Well, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction that it was it was hard to whittle um, the list down to, to 21 women. You know, there's some extraordinary women in history and, and alive today. Um, was there anyone that you knew had to be, that there was no question that, that, that she would be in the book? I think Artemisia Gentileschi is the one I most wanted to promote. Mm. Uh, and have people know about. Uh, I love her paintings. They are beautiful and extraordinary and unique, even though, you know, she grew up um, to admire Caravaggio. So that's the period that she's working within. Her father was a well-known painter uh, in that style. She learned everything about painting from him. Um, but the style of her painting, she takes on the biblical stories that so many of painters of the period took on, uh, but hers are significantly different. When you look at paintings of Susanna and the elders, you 
usually see paintings by men, a couple of blokes looking down at this rather flirtatious, pretty-looking young woman, uh, looking as if she's really rather enjoying it. Um, when you see paintings of Judith and Holofernes, the, the story of the woman who murdered by slitting the throat of, of the man who was threatening her people, um, you see um, a rather feeble-looking young woman looking mm, very reluctant to slit this man's throat with a, a sort of hag with her, her handmaiden. Now, you look at Gentileschi's paintings. Her Susanna is sitting uh, with two men literally leering at her over the top of a wall and her face is saying don't do this this is unacceptable i will not be harassed in this way she looks furious <laughs> and then her judith and her maiden are a couple of very strong powerful young women um, who are there to job to as part of a war uh, and then when you look at her history and you begin to understand why there is such a strong feminist tone to her paintings she was raped she when she was 17 she was in her father's house working in his studio with a, a woman there who was supposed to be her companion to help protect her her father had had to go out and um Another painter came to the house and raped her. And uh, her father found out about it. He took the case to court. She was interviewed first in the house, gave the most extraordinarily graphic mm. details of exactly what happened to her. Um, she then had to appear in court and tell the story. And she was tortured with thumbscrews. And she looked at the man who had raped her and said, mm, these are the rings you promised me. Because, of course, he said, come on, I will marry you, although he was already married. And the, the really extraordinary thing about her, her story, uh, you know, rape was not something a woman was supposed to complain of. It was something a father was complaining of. So that was how the court proceedings went. But she was believed. And. I thought, what an extraordinary young woman to be able to tell that story in the way she told it and be believed, which, you know, women appear in court complaining of rape even now, and they're often not believed. So she, I completely adore. Um, who else had to be there? Um, Pharaoh Hatshepsut had to be there. I start the book with her. Um, and somebody I noticed the other day who'd who'd obviously read the book um, described her as the first drag king, which <laughs> made, made me laugh. Um, because I, I discovered her on a trip to Egypt for Woman's Heart some years ago. Um, we were making a program about Egypt because things were beginning to change there. Women were covering themselves much more than they had before. Um, there was real pressure on women to become more Islamic. Um, so we, we wanted to go and find out really what was what was going on in terms of the sexual politics there. Um, but of course, we also wanted to do something of 
of history, ancient history, and Hatshepsut was the obvious one. So we got on a plane in Cairo, the producer, Mary and I, and in order to get across to the Valley of the Kings, where Hatshepsut's temple is, uh, we had to take a, a taxi that would take us over on a car ferry. And, and I tell this story only as a warning to anybody who wants to go and see Hatshepsut's temple because it is beautiful. This very kind taxi driver offered Mary and I a cup of tea each. And I said to Mary, Mary, don't drink it tip it out of the window when he's not looking because it will be Nile water and it will not have been properly boiled. And she, being a very nice, polite English woman, said, oh, no, Jenny, you know, that's ridiculous. Of course, it's very kind of him. I'm going to drink it. So uh, she drank it. I have never spent time with anybody with such a severe case of jippy tummy which went on oh for weeks anyway we did i threw mine out of the window so i was okay when we got to the temple it it is beautiful it sits in the in the hillside it's exquisite architecturally and on the walls is engraved, you know, the Egyptians engraved their history so brilliantly across the board, but hers tells the story that she made up to convince people that she could be the pharaoh. Um, and it's a really graphic illustration of her mother being approached by the god Amon, um, being impregnated by him and the pictures, you know, leave you in no doubt what she's, <laughs> what she's telling you. And then this um, little person um, who, yeah, it looks like a boy. Um, and so she posed as a man for the rest of her life and became the pharaoh and was hugely successful. Um, it was one of the most peaceful periods in ancient Egyptian history. Um, the trade went extremely well. Um, and then the, the guy who was to inherit after her did what so many men in history seem to have done, which is to wipe out the, the women's history. And there were two obelisks in Karnak, in the great temple in Karnak on the other side of, of the river, which again told her story. And he had one of them knocked down and the other one surrounded by stones. But of course, wonderful Egyptologists who go and, you know, dig and find out things about ancient Egypt. Um, this, the, the stones were taken away and there was an obelisk, a great obelisk with, again, her story on it. And ironically, you know, the fact that he put the stones around it probably protected it for yeah. posterity. Um, so, yeah, she had to be in there. Um, Joan of Arc had to be in there because she's such an important image in France, across the world. You know, this young woman who heard voices and wanted to become a soldier to help the Dauphin take his place as king of France because the, those wretched English were taking the place over and we had to get rid of the English. And, and the images of her in her armour, on her white charger, you know, you have to look deeply into what really happened. And there's no real evidence that she was such a great soldier, although she did do her best to help 
the Dauphin, uh, who then did not protect her in any way when the English managed to pick her up and tried her. And the court reports of her being interviewed as a heretic uh, by the English are extant and fascinating. So there is absolutely no evidence that this was a ditzy little anorexic girl who's really intelligent. She gives really clever answers. And the one thing she insisted upon was that she would only wear male dress because she said that if she wore female dress, she was then at risk from the people who were guard the men who were guarding her who she said would rape her if she was wearing female dress. And when it comes down to the final analysis, the reason she was actually taken to the stake and burned was really because she refused to dress as a woman. So I say at the end of that chapter, uh, you know, wear your trousers with pride and in memory of Joan of Arc because she suffered the most terrible death. Um, there's a couple of inclusions. Um, I'm thinking probably Madonna is, is, is probably the one that jumps out that perhaps people might be surprised to see in the book. What were you, what was your thinking around that? A lot of my friends have said, you put Madonna in there. <laughs> what yeah. more? And, uh, I suppose when it comes down to the worst possible motive. I'm just a fan. <laughs> I love her music. I have loved her music for a very long time. Uh, I still, from time to time on a Sunday morning, if I'm feeling a bit fed up, will put it on and dance around the sitting room to it. Um, but the real reason she's there is her significance in enabling women to be open about their sexuality, um, be open about the way they want to dress, the way they want to behave, what they want to do. And for young women in popular music to take control of the way they look. You know, so many young performers who I've spoken to have said, oh, you know, the record industry, they put so much pressure on you to look a certain way, sing a certain type of song. Madonna had none of that. She just said, no, she'll have her own company. She'll produce the music she wants to produce. And now, of course, she's an older woman who people are saying, oh, come on, you know, she's 60. Isn't it time she gave up? And she just says, no, I will continue. Apparently, her husband, the um, English one, Guy Ritchie, um, uh, of whom she said, she had such difficulty in that marriage because she just didn't get England. She didn't get the kind of social strata in England. She didn't understand the pub and how the pub worked. <laughs> and, and the one thing that really annoyed her about him was he would say, oh, come on, do you really have to go away and do another tour? Do you really have to make another record? You know, you've made all the money you could possibly want to make. And she, she said, you know, when did anybody ever go to Picasso and say, oh, come on, you're 80. You know, do you really need to make another painting? He made all the money. You've got all the fame you want. Nobody ever said, Picasso, stop painting. Why should anybody say to me, stop making music? And for that, she is such an important model. 
Do you think we're seeing um, sort of a resurgence in interest in, in women's history? I mean, particularly this year with the, the centenary of the um, of some women in Britain getting the vote. Um, and there's lots of sort of women's voices becoming sort of a lot louder, I think, and, and this year. Do you think that's the case? Do you think we've got some way to go with, um, with women's history and, and, and interest in it? I would say it's about time. Um, I mean, I have been aware, obviously, because of working on Women's Hour, uh, of some of the best writers, you know, like Professor Janet Todd, for instance, who early in her academic career started to work on women and did wonderful biographies of women like Jane Austen. Um, And that seemed to kind of start it. Um, And then there are other women like Philippa Gregory, uh, who's who's a proper historian, but also a wonderful novelist, who's very interested in the royal women of this country and does as much as she can with the historical facts that she's got and then fills in the rest and makes really beautiful novels. So these things have been going on for some time. But I've certainly noticed this year, uh, I mean, my first one, The History of Britain in 21 Women, um, came out, what, two years ago, um, and was treated as just something unusual, I think, at the time. Um and now, as, as the World Book is, is coming out, um, I'm noticing other women are writing about women. Uh, there, there was one I came across called What Would Bodicea Do? Um, yes, I've seen that, yeah. yeah. Or, or was it What Would Boudicca Do? You see, I don't call her Boudicca, I call her Bodicea, because <laughs> I think Boudicca is an ugly-sounding name, and I was taught Bodicea as a child anyway, so I stuck with Bodicea. Um, so there, there have been some books for children, um, a few for adults. And if this is a trend, I wholeheartedly applaud it because there are so many women who, uh, you know, do defy what dear Thomas Carlyle said, who I've criticised in the introductions to both of my women's history books, um, the famous and greatly respected 19th century Scottish philosopher, um, who said the history of the world is but the biography of great men. And I keep having to say, no, Thomas, you were wrong. He'd be spinning in his grave now, wouldn't he? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, and just finally, um, you do you think that there's, you know, have you got other women in mind that you would like to, to write about who perhaps didn't make it into this book? I have long lists of women who I would like mm. to write about, who I am not revealing to anybody <laughs> yet. They are ticking away inside my head. And uh, yes, I will eventually. What I would really love to be able to do is to take one who I adore and try and do a Philippa Gregory on her. I love, I love Philippa Gregory's books. I mean, I think the books that, that I write are easily accessible because I write like a journalist rather than an academic. Um, And I hope that, you know, people will enjoy them and find them reasonably easy to read. The most heartening thing that 
that's happened is I've had a number of texts and emails from women saying, because I wrote about Bodicea and Elizabeth I, um, that they brought their daughters down to London to go to the places like the Bodicea statue um, down by um, Westminster, down by the Thames, and Elizabeth I's grave in Westminster Abbey to take their daughters to the places that inspired me as a very young girl uh, to get them inspired too. And if I can inspire young women to know about women who went before them, who worked so hard to challenge what was expected of them um, and have them as models, then I'll have done my job. But I would love to write a novel. Whether I can or not, I don't know. That was Jenny Murray. A History of the World in 21 Women, a personal selection, is out now, published by One World. And we've now reached the end of today's episode. But do join us again on Thursday, when we'll be taking a fresh look at one of ancient Rome's most fascinating characters. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 